0: The views and opinions expressed during Eye on the Triangle do not represent WKNC or the student media. Your dial is currently tuned to Eye on the Triangle at WKNC 88.1. Thanks for listening. i Erin Kling with WKNC A.1's I on the Triangle, and I'm currently speaking with Lauren Hendricks, a volunteer at the NYC-based Stamps to Students. Hello, Lauren.
1: Hey, How are you today?
0: I'm doing very well, and how are you?
1: Doing well also, thank you.
0: What exactly is Stamps to Students?
1: Stamps to Students is a volunteer group that was started grassroots style, and it was organized by me and an acquaintance of mine from school, and it just kind of fanned out from there everyone involved with it is just a volunteer and it's a friend of a friend or someone who's an acquaintance and it's essentially a group of people that got together we thought about how to help students or just young people in general get more active with voting and we also thought about the unique challenges of COVID-19 the economic challenges that we're having in this country And the fact that schools are very hard-pressed for extra time and energy to actually help students get out to vote or get their ballot in. So we thought of what's one thing that we could do, one small thing that we could do to make it easier for
0: students to vote. You've chosen a heck of a time to start a program like this, especially in the face of the pandemic currently sweeping the globe. How did you manage to get over that original starting anxiety? How did you manage to... Kind of put your toe in the water and move on from there?
1: That's a really good question because I've actually been thinking about becoming more civically active for probably a couple of years now. And I would say that just the tumult of the summer really spurred me into a state of motivation and action. It was me feeling more intense things, but also me connecting with people who are also feeling those intense things. So I would credit Ursula, the person that I've been working with for this project, because she was able to come up with a plan. And with my help and with the help of the other volunteers, we've actually been able to combine a lot of our skills and knowledge and keep that forward momentum going with the project.
0: So what was that feeling? What was that sensation that drove you forward here? You described that everyone around you was kind of Getting this imperative, the sensation that you had to do something. What was that?
1: That would mostly be just the sense that we don't really know what the future holds right now, and there's an extra sense that without getting active, your voice is going to be lost. There's a sense that unless you speak up or do something right now, you aren't going to have a say as to what happens in the future.
0: And how does one have a say?
1: When you ask that. I would say that voting is one good first step in terms of getting active civically in
0: this country. Being active civically in the country, what's the point? Why bother?
1: I think anyone listening is going to have to decide that for themselves, about whether they want to be active or whether they don't want to be active. Part of it has to be, even if maybe you aren't 100% invested in something that you see in government right now, are you willing to not be active at all? And for your opinions or your beliefs to not be heard.
0: Exactly. A vote may feel like a small thing. Everyone feels that they are these little pieces of of a much larger nation state. But it is the only lever that you have to pull. It is the only thing that you can do to have there be any kind of change politically, whatever your intentions are.
1: I agree. I think that being a volunteer group, there's no way that we could take on the responsibility of being part of a party and... We're just noticing that everything is so divisive. There's really, I don't know. I mean, this this could get very philosophical, but I really think that the main point here is to get people voting, get them to the polls. It's not about which party you're voting for. It's more about being active and feeling empowered as a citizen.
0: Do you think a lot of Americans feel empowered as citizens?
1: I really think it depends on who you're
0: talking to. You did mention, as we were having our little conversation before the interview, that America has really poor voter turnout. Do you have any thoughts or feelings on that?
1: I can add that what I was referencing before was Pew Research Center data that I found that showed that within the time period of the last two presidential elections, there are more than 20 countries in the world with higher voter turnouts and some of those countries have 20% higher turnout than we do. So it really is staggering how different the turnout is here. And I would say for claiming to be a democracy and for claiming that that's an underpinning of who we are as a nation, I think we really need to Look seriously at how that's functioning. And my feeling personally is even if you're not extremely excited about what's going on right now, if more and more people continue to not speak up and not be part of democracy, it's going to become worse and worse over time.
0: How would you describe your duties, at least your duties as Stamps to Students?
1: At Stamps to Students, I started out looking hard into where are we focusing the project, what exactly are we doing as a group, and what can we take on, and what are the regulations for the states that we might select. And the states that we chose to work on in terms of trying to get stamps out to students for their mail-in ballots are North Carolina and Florida, and those two states were listed by Tufts University as being of the top states that young voters can make a difference. So it's purely logical why we chose those states.
0: You've taken on one of the hardest jobs anyone can imagine. That is changing people's minds. For a person who isn't willing to go down to the voting center, who isn't willing to have a vote-in mail sent to them, how do you reach people like this? How do you change their minds and convince them that it is important that they do have a voice? How do you empower them?
1: I would actually challenge your assumption there because... If we're talking about 18, 19, 20 year olds at the youngest, they haven't even had an option to vote yet. So I'm looking at it more as beginning their civic engagement at the time that it's meant to begin in this country. And I'm really trying to connect with students and maybe help them just make it a little bit easier for them to jump in and get involved and to build some of that Once you're an adult and you're voting every election, it's almost kind of like a habit. You build in this sense of responsibility and you research the candidates. And I'm just trying to help students get to that point as early as possible and fill in some of the gaps that maybe the universities have this year because
0: of COVID. So it's less a matter of changing minds and more a matter of just showing people their opportunities. Absolutely. And how do you accomplish that?
1: We took the opportunity to not look at it ideologically, and we're really looking at it pragmatically. It's more about how do we get stamps to as many students as possible, and how do we make sure that we have the funds to be mailing everything out. So it's not, we're really trying to utilize social media platforms. We're also reaching out to a lot of administrators and student organizations, and just utilizing the networks that they've already built.
0: And how do you go through those networks? How do you interact with schools? And and how do you make this more convenient for students?
1: We're trying to make it as simple as possible. So we have a number of volunteers, about eight right now, just looking at who we could possibly reach out to at each school. And I've designed some templates and we're essentially just reaching out and letting people know that they can respond to us but also providing material that they can pass out to students to try to get the word
0: out. When you look at your fellow volunteers, all of you who have set aside your time for no personal reward, but for this for this cause you've taken on, how do you feel?
1: I do think there will be some personal reward, hopefully. I'm not doing it for that purpose, but to look around and feel like you're living in a world that you want to be living in, I think there's reward in that. So I want to inspire other people to get involved, but I also just want to inspire people to show up and vote because it seems like a very simple step that all of us could take right now, having some sort of say in terms of what the future will look like.
2: Have
0: you faced any difficulties during this? Any frustrations?
1: I personally haven't been that frustrated. It's more about realizing how difficult it is to actually vote depending on where you live. That's been my biggest frustration doing this project. So I would pivot a little bit and really focus on what might be difficult for voters this year. And students have a whole list of things that might be difficult for them. But in general, in North Carolina, it looks like the deadlines and the witness requirements and just the rigor of the instructions on the ballots are pretty complex. So I would say that we are also encouraging people to show up and vote in person. We just decided that it'd be easier for us to do a project where we're physically helping people with a process. It was hard to think of how to do that with in-person voting.
0: So, of course, you switched to the idea of trying to supply as many people with stamps as possible. Trying to get them those 55-cent pieces so they can make sure their votes get where they need to
3: go.
1: That's the hope. And it's really funny how we landed on that idea because Ursula was actually talking to some students and they didn't know where to get stamps. She started looking down this rabbit hole of, is this actually a widespread problem or is this kind of a fluke of this particular school I'm at? And she found out that across the country, there are just issues in terms of knowing how the mail works and how to, not only how to apply for mail-in voting, but to actually execute mail-in voting
0: as a student. That's just the thing, right? For a person who's just starting out, for a person who has no experience and, and maybe a loose understanding of what's required of them, a blockage like, where do I get stamps? How does this mail process work? Am I going to mess up or make a mistake and be embarrassed? These can be things that hold people back and keep them out of the
3: polls.
1: It really is. All I can add is I encourage everyone in North Carolina to vote. And our website is called stamps to students It's spelled out, the T-O is spelled out. So it's stampstostudents.com. And if you're a student, you can request a free stamp And there is also a donor button where you can donate a couple dollars if you'd like to support a student getting a stamp.
0: Having just voted by mail myself, the process can be, it can be a little bit intimidating. There's a lot of instructions on the page. You're always worried about putting the wrong thing in the wrong place and kind of messing things up. But once you get going, once you get started, and of course, once you get those stamps, everything flows really nicely. Often, I think the biggest stumbling block here might be the witness program, but if you have a parent or if you have a sibling or if you even have a friend, that's all it takes for you to be able to have your document notarized and sent back in so you can get your vote.
1: Absolutely. And I also would encourage people to check out the election board website and even reach out to them if you have questions, because with all of the information that is going around, it really helps to just get some concrete answers to your questions.
0: Say four students somewhere in America wanted to get together and make a volunteer program. What would you tell them that you didn't know starting out?
1: See, I have been very lucky to meet some people that have extremely good organization skills. I would say minor are medium good, but the people I'm working with have really, really good organization skills. So I would say that if you don't have someone in your group that is capable of managing multiple people, and also managing websites, requests, like multiple templates, forms, all that stuff, all at the same time, I would try to find someone that can do that for you, because that has been critical to keeping our project going.
0: Thank you, Lauren Hendricks, so much for coming in to talk to us.
1: Thank you. Have a great day.
0: I'm Erin Kling of WKNC 88.1 Zion the Triangle.
2: Water systems across North Carolina are in need of repair, yet local government budgets are shrinking amid the economic fallout from the pandemic. Advocates say federal funding is critical to ensuring rural communities have access to clean water. The last major infrastructure package passed by lawmakers expired on September 30th, and experts say rural communities who already have been hard hit by the coronavirus recession need more investment. Charles Anderson of Resource Institute. Institute says local governments in rural areas have fewer tax dollars to rely on for upgrades. He says money available for waterway restoration and infrastructure work often is in the form of loans.
3: And a lot of it has been loan money and that means that if a city or town wants to improve their water resources they have to go out here and get a loan to do that and a lot of these communities just don't have the resources to go out here and borrow that money.
2: Anderson believes boosting the number of grants available Available to rural governments could help. One Pew study found the nation's water systems are on the cusp of needing $100 billion worth of repairs and maintenance. Last year, Anderson and a team of engineers undertook a stream restoration project aimed at preventing the city of Brevard's water treatment plant from being damaged by high levels of sediment. He says sediment is one of the biggest problems water treatment facilities have. When the cost to treat water goes up, so do household water bills, especially when communities are forced to rely on outdated infrastructure.
3: What we did there was actually, you know, not only restore the stream itself around and upstream from the intake, but created a whole new intake system for them, thereby improving the volume of water and the quality of water they received.
2: Earlier this year, the USDA announced it would provide $281 million to improve rural communities' water and wastewater infrastructure in North Carolina and 35 other states. Water systems across North Carolina are in need of repair, yet local government budgets are shrinking amid the economic fallout from the pandemic. Advocates say federal funding is critical to ensuring rural communities have access to clean water. The last major infrastructure package passed by lawmakers expired on September 30th, and experts say rural communities who already have been hard hit by the coronavirus recession need more investment. Charles Anderson of Resource Institute. Institute says local governments in rural areas have fewer tax dollars to rely on for upgrades. He says money available for waterway restoration and infrastructure work often is in the form of loans.
3: And a lot of it has been loan money and that means that if a city or town wants to improve their water resources they have to go out here and get a loan to do that and a lot of these communities just don't have the resources to go out here and borrow that money.
2: Anderson believes boosting the number of grants available Available to rural governments could help. One Pew study found the nation's water systems are on the cusp of needing $100 billion worth of repairs and maintenance. Last year, Anderson and a team of engineers undertook a stream restoration project aimed at preventing the city of Brevard's water treatment plant from being damaged by high levels of sediment. He says sediment is one of the biggest problems water treatment facilities have. When the cost to treat water goes up, so do household water bills, especially when communities are forced to rely on outdated infrastructure.
3: What we did there was actually, you know, not only restore the stream itself around and upstream from the intake, but created a whole new intake system for them, thereby improving the volume of water and the quality of water they received.
2: Earlier this year, the USDA announced it would provide $281 million to improve rural communities' water and wastewater infrastructure in North Carolina and 35 other states. As Democratic vice presidential candidate Kamala Harris and Republican Mike Pence gear up for their first debate tonight, Christian voters say they're overshadowed by media coverage of far-right evangelical issues. Reverend Dr. Oliver M. Thomas is a pastor in Greensboro. He says national politicians continue to pander to religious voters on issues such as abortion and defunding Planned Parenthood, even though most people of faith are focused on candidates' views on health care, the pandemic, economic, inequality and racial justice.
4: People are afraid that their voice will not be heard. People are afraid that their vote as a way of speaking their voice will not be heard or recognized. People are also responding to what they've already seen, unfortunately, from too many politicians who have not been listening.
2: Thomas says many voters, even those who may not identify as religious, are seeking moral leadership as political polarization increases and COVID-19 continues to claim lies. A Pew study released earlier this year found 94% of all Americans think it's important to have a president who lives a moral, ethical life. Thomas says he's troubled by the tendency of some religious voters to view President Donald Trump as a messiah.
4: And then if we elect those folks, then they are going to do what God has called us to do and called them to do. That I disagree with. No politician is God or can stand in the place of God.
2: He says people of faith across the state can use their values to vote in candidates who will make the most impact in their
4: communities. From our board of education to our city council to our county commissioners, that is electing people who will listen, who will be present to the community, and who will allow the community members' voices to be heard and not ignored.
2: According to the North Carolina Board of Elections, more than one million residents have requested vote-by-mail absentee ballots for the November election. Around 10 times higher than in 2016. For North Carolina News Service, I'm Nadia Romlagan. Welcome to 2020 Talks, where we track
5: the 2020 elections in uncharted territory. When I put my hand on the Bible and took the oath of office 22 months ago, I knew this job would be hard. But I'll be honest, I never could have imagined anything like this. That's Michigan's Governor Gretchen Whitmer, after terrorism and conspiracy charges were brought against 13 men who had allegedly been planning to storm the state capitol building, kidnap her, and start a civil war. The FBI said since the summer, some of the men had gathered multiple times to discuss the mission, practice firearms training, and combat drills. In April, President Trump openly encouraged armed Michiganders at the state capitol protesting coronavirus health and safety precautions, tweeting, quote, liberate Michigan. When our leaders speak, Their words matter. They carry weight. When our leaders meet with, encourage, or fraternize with domestic terrorists, they legitimize their actions, and they are complicit. Igor Volsky with Guns Down America says firearms need to be kept out of public spaces, including protests, state capitals and polling places. He hopes the increased presence of armed intimidators is a wake up call for states to tighten regulations.
3: Those voices that were previously pushed to the fringe of our national conversation now have a platform and now believe that they are entitled to use their firearms in order to suppress people's constitutional rights.
5: In recent debates, neither President Trump nor Vice President Mike Pence would commit to a peaceful transfer of power if they lose the election. Democratic Representative Barbara Lee from California joined the African American Policy Forum yesterday to discuss the VP debate.
3: I think it's important to recognize how vulnerable. What's left of this democracy is because they made a mockery out of it.
5: Senator Kamala Harris is the first Black woman to debate on the vice presidential stage. Yesterday, in an interview with Fox Business Channel, Trump, in a personal attack, called her a, quote, monster and, quote, totally unlikable, language often used to describe strong women's behavior when similar actions would be viewed positively for a man. Research shows many women in politics face a double standard, especially women of color. Barbara Arnwine with the Transformative Justice Coalition thought Harris's authenticity was powerful. It was not the litigator people predicted. It was not the angry woman. It was not the woman that people told us to expect that they would, you know, send her in kind of trying to be, you know, as nice as she could. It was just her. And the Biden and Trump campaign sparred over the next presidential debate after the debate commission announced it would be done remotely for safety. Trump rejected a virtual debate, so the Biden campaign has begun planning its own town hall event that night. White House physician Sean Conley said yesterday that Trump is done with treatment and will return to public events Saturday, less than two weeks after his COVID diagnosis. From Pacifica Network and Public News Service, I'm Lily Bulky. Thanks for listening at PacificaNetwork.org and PublicNewsService.org.
6: The Public News Service Daily Newscast for October the 9th, 2020. I'm Mike Clifford. Democrats Thursday made it clear they felt President Trump was at least part to blame for a thwarted scheme to kidnap the governor of Michigan, citing the president's divisive rhetoric that has often found support among white supremacists and other hate groups. That, as reported by National Public Radio. The FBI said it foiled a plot by militia members to kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer, a Democrat, and take her to a secure location in Wisconsin for what they would call a trial Six men have been arrested and are facing federal charges. A new study shows New York was the only state to see a significant decline in the number of uninsured children since 2016. Our Andrea Sears reports that progress is in
3: jeopardy. Most states saw either more children without health insurance or no change in the percentage of kids covered. But the report from the Georgetown University Center for Children and Families shows from 2016 to 2019, the number of uninsured New York children fell by almost 11 percent. Kate Breslin with the Schuyler Center for Analysis and Advocacy credits state government and policymakers for the progress.
4: Our state's leadership at all levels has prioritized health and coverage for children no matter where their families come from.
3: But advocates for children's health fear the economic recession caused by the COVID pandemic will drive the number of uninsured children up nationwide and in New York. Meantime, the
6: number of kids without health insurance in the state of South Carolina had jumped 38 percent by the year 2019. Joan Alker at the Georgetown Center believes states can counteract the Trump administration policies that drop more kids from health insurance rolls.
4: States do have enormous power here. However, they can't entirely outrun the federal context. We're going to have to see a renewed commitment at all levels of government, federal and state, to turn the situation around.
6: Studies show kids who are covered are more likely to graduate from high school, attend college, and be more productive as adults. CNBC reports House Speaker Pelosi and Treasury Secretary Mnuchin spoke about a broad coronavirus stimulus plan Thursday, capping another day of jumbled efforts in Washington to inject more aid into the floundering economy. Pelosi and Mnuchin had a 40-minute afternoon phone conversation about whether there is any prospect of an imminent agreement on a comprehensive bill. And CNN was first to report that some medical professionals at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center were asked to sign non-disclosure agreements when President Trump made his last-minute visit there last November. CNN notes more than one of the staff members who were asked to sign the NDA refused to do so. This is PNS. Even before the pandemic, nearly 40% of people in the U.S. said they would not be able to cover a surprise $400 expense. And the health crisis has only made things worse.
4: A survey by Money Magazine and Morning Consult shows 11% of Americans report being very stressed about credit card debt with nearly 30 percent saying their reliance on credit cards for food and self-care items has increased since the pandemic began. Bradley Klontz is a financial therapist who describes COVID-19 as a psychological earthquake that has induced stress at unprecedented levels.
0: Money is the number one source of stress in the lives of Americans, even when times are great. So we're the wealthiest country in the world, yet this is the biggest source of stress
3: in our lives as Americans.
6: I'm Roz Brown. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention published a guide coping with stress related to COVID-19. You'll find it on their website, cdc.gov. A new multi-state partnership aims to shine a light on a hidden African-American history in the Chesapeake Bay area.
4: The National Park Service is joining with conservation and historic organizations in Maryland, Pennsylvania, and Virginia to document neglected Black cultural sites and landscapes. It's a first step to make sure the locations are protected and their stories told, according to Allison Lutheran with the Maryland Historic Trust, one of the groups involved in the project. In a national climate of racial tension, she thinks the project is timely and overdue. It's of utmost importance today because
5: these places are endangered by a variety of Threats, including lack of awareness and
1: systemic disinvestment, development, and climate change.
4: She points out the Bay region is rich with African-American history and culture, from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement. I'm Diane Bernard.
6: Finally, Eric, take it off. Reports come Monday, many Montanans will be celebrating indigenous people rather than Christopher Columbus.
0: Four Treasure State cities have replaced Columbus Day with Indigenous People's Day in order to recognize Native culture and history. Marcia Small is an Earth Sciences doctoral student at Montana State University who's leading the push to observe Indigenous People's Day statewide. She wants everyone to think about their ancestors on Monday rather than just the legacy of European explorer Christopher Columbus.
4: We need to have respect for each other and celebrate each other rather than create more divisiveness. That's create a collectiveness that moves toward a better horizon.
0: To commemorate the day, Montana State University is hosting Joy Harjo, the current U.S. Poet Laureate and the first Native American to hold the title.
6: Bozeman and Missoula have recognized Indigenous People Day since the year 2016. This is Mike Clifford, and thank you for wrapping up your week with Public News Service. We are a member of Lister Supported, heard on some of America's most interesting radio stations, and online at publicnewsservice.org.